In February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be a speaker at a Bible conference held at Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for that weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. There was far more material that I could ever deal with in just four lectures. Since that time, I've expanded those initial four lectures into about 14 messages, of which you are listening to one of these. I'd encourage all those who are listening to visit my publishing website at triumphantpublications.com, and there you can read for free a written version of all these messages. These messages are also being compiled into a published uh, book titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise, scheduled for release sometime in mid-June of this year, 2013. My website will guide you how to purchase a hard copy if you wish. If you don't want to purchase a hard version, you can read the transcript by going to the website and clicking on the appropriate box titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise Transcript. Also, I have listed links to all the audio messages found on Sermon Audio under the general topic, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen or read about this very dangerous view that is gaining ground, unfortunately, among certain churches and institutions. In this message, titled, The Compromiser, Dr. Tim Keller, I will be dealing with a pastor whose views are quite disconcerting. Tim Keller is known as one of the PCA's most culturally relevant pastors from Metro New York Presbytery. Uh, what is Keller's ties with Biologos? In my previous message, I discuss the compromising views of Biologos. So what, are the, what is the relationship of Dr. Tim Keller with Biologos? As of January 2013, one can go to Biologos' homepage. They do rotate references during the month. But you can find this reference that Tim Keller uh, wrote for Biologos. He says, quote, Many people today, both secular and Christian, want us to believe that science and religion cannot live together. Not only is this untrue, but we believe that a thoughtful dialogue between science and faith is essential for engaging the hearts and minds of individuals today. The Biologos Foundation provides an important first step towards that end. The reference, Tim Keller, pastor, author, The Reason for God. Tim Keller's church has served in the past as a host for Biologos' Theology of Celebration workshops. This is most disturbing because, as I said in the previous message, I gave numerous quotes from Biologos' website. It is no biblical celebration of praise to the true God, as I pointed out. Some of the signees at these workshops at Keller's hosting have been Dr. Peter Enns, whom I will be discussing in a later message, Bishop N.T. Wright, and Dr. Bruce Waltke. These men are clear-cut evolutionists. From a 2010 Biologos Theology of Celebration workshop in New York City, 
The workshop produced a signed statement that Dr. Keller and Dr. Ron Chung signed. The statement included these words, although this is not the entirety of the summary statement uh, from that workshop. It says, quote, We also affirm the value of science, which eloquently describes the glory of God's creation. We stand with a tradition of Christians for whom faith and science are mutually hospitable. And we see no necessary conflict between the Bible and the findings of science. We reject, however, the unspoken philosophical presuppositions of scientism, the belief that science is the sole source of all knowledge. We agree that the methods of the natural sciences provide the most reliable guide to understanding the material world, and the current evidence from science indicates that the diversity of life is best explained as a result of an evolutionary process. Thus, Biologos affirms that evolution is a means by which God providentially achieves God's purposes. We affirm, without reservation, both the authority of the Bible and the integrity of science. Accepting each of the, quote, two books, the Word and the works of God, as God's revelations to humankind. Specifically, we affirm the central truth of the biblical accounts of Adam and Eve in revealing the character of God, the character of human beings, the inherent goodness of the material creation. We acknowledge the challenge of providing an account of origins that does full justice both to science and to the biblical record. Based on our discussions, we affirm that there are several options that can achieve this synthesis, including some which involve a historical couple, Adam and Eve, and that embrace the compelling conclusions that the earth is more than four billion years old and that all species on this planet are historically related to the process of evolution. We commit ourselves to spreading the word about such harmonious accounts of truth that God has revealed in the Bible through science. End of quote from this 2010 uh, summary statement of a theology of celebration from Biologos hosted at Tim Keller's church. Now, the most incriminating evidence against Dr. Keller is this. First, his church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, has served as a host for Biologos' workshops of praise celebration. Second, Dr. Keller signed this 2010 summary statement that I just read parts of, meaning that he is in full agreement with it. This statement fully embraces the notion of theistic evolution. Third, it is most incriminating that Dr. Keller embraces the view that there is a joint authority, the authority of Scripture and the integrity of science. Whenever the Bible is viewed in joint authority with something, then the Bible's exclusive authority, sola scriptura, is effectively and systematically denied. Note carefully what the state statement purports. It says, we agree that the methods of the natural sciences provide the most reliable guide to understanding the material world, and the current evidence from science indicates that the diversity of life is best explained as a result of an evolutionary process. Thus, Biologos affirms that evolution is a means by which God providentially achieves God's purposes. Please note that it is not scriptural 
exegesis that provides us with a reliable understanding of the material world, but science. And it isn't just science, but an evolutionary view of science. Hence, an interpretation of the Bible regarding creation is governed by a source outside of the Bible. An evolutionary view of the universe is superimposed upon the Bible. Evolution becomes a filter by which the Bible is interpreted. And fourth, Dr. Keller has granted permission to Biologos to use his endorsement for the foundation, a foundation committed to promoting evolutionary views. Therefore, by his endorsement of Biologos, Keller is thereby encouraging people to read their articles, some of which I have quoted from in a previous message. In 2010, Dr. Keller wrote a paper for Biologos titled, Creation, Evolution, and Christian Laypeople. The following are various excerpts from this paper in my critical analysis of its content. In other words, it is my review of his article. At the outset, Keller addresses what he perceives to be the problem. He states it succinctly. If you believe in God, you can't believe in evolution. If you believe in evolution, you can't believe in God. Keller is addressing the issue of trying to reach seekers or inquirers to Christianity. Unfortunately, Keller sets up a false dichotomy when he says, quote, They may be drawn to many things about the Christian faith, but they say, I don't see how I can believe the Bible if that means I have to reject science, end of quote. Keller argues that many people question the premise that science and faith are irreconcilable and that a high view of the Bible does not demand belief in just one account of origins. In saying this, Keller is laying the groundwork for accepting evolution within the framework of Scripture. In describing these open-minded thinkers, Keller states, quote, They think that there are a variety of ways in which God could have brought about the creation of life forms in human life using evolutionary processes, and that the picture of incompatibility between orthodox faith and evolutionary biology is greatly overdrawn, end of quote. Dr. Keller is guilty of setting forth a perceived false dichotomy between the Bible and science. The issue that I and other creationists have with this statement is that the issue is not between the Bible and science. The issue is between the Bible and pseudoscience, i.e. evolutionary thinking. In previous lectures, I have demonstrated that evolution does not belong in the category of operational science. It is a philosophical worldview that is in rebellion against God. Keller, along with others, simply thinks that, that evolution is an established fact. In previous uh, messages, I have shown that evolution is no fact of science at all, but mere speculation. I even quoted from evolutionists that say it cannot be proven. Keller has simply bought into the lie of evolutionary thinking. Keller states, quote, There is no logical reason to preclude that God could have used evolution to predispose people to believe in God in general so that people would be able to consider true belief when they hear the gospel preached. This is just one of many places where the supposed incompatibility of orthodox faith with evolution begins to fade away under more sustained reflection. End of quote. 
In his article, Keller does not accept a 24-hour view of the days of creation. In fact, he believes that the biblical author never intended Genesis 1 to be taken literally. He adopts the view of others that there is a problem in trying to reconcile Genesis 1 and 2, if we adopt a literal interpretation. Keller is distressed with the fact that Christian laypeople remain confused because the creationists are most prominent in arguing that biblical orthodoxy and evolution are mutually exclusive. Keller states, quote, What will it take to help Christian laypeople see greater coherence between what science tells us about creation and what the Bible teaches us about it? End of quote. The previous quote is in total agreement with his affirmation from Biologos' 2010 summary statement that science is the most reliable guide to understanding the created order. Keller appeals to the fact that in his 35 years as pastor, he has spoken to many lay people who struggle with modern science and orthodox belief. He apparently thinks that the struggle is unnecessary. In other words, why struggle? Simply accept what modern science has said, and there is a way to make the scripture pliable to scientific fact, which means there is a way to fit evolution into the biblical account, according to him. Keller attempts to answer three possible questions that lay people might ask. The following are his questions, and, he, and then he answers them. Question number one. If God used evolution to create, then we can't take Genesis 1 literally. And if we can't do that, why take any other part of the Bible literally? Keller's answer. The way to respect the authority of the biblical writers is to take them as they want to be taken. Sometimes they want to be taken literally, sometimes they don't. We must listen to them, not impose our thinking and agenda on them. In further explaining his answer, Keller states, quote, So what does this mean? It means Genesis 1 does not teach that God made the world in six 24-hour days. Of course, it doesn't teach evolution either, because it doesn't address the actual processes by which God created life. However, it does not preclude the possibility of the earth being extremely old. We arrive at this conclusion not because we want to make room for any particular scientific view of things, but because we are trying to be true to the text, listening as carefully as we can to the meaning of the inspired author. End of quote. In his comment on the possibility of the earth being old, Keller has a footnote which reads, quote, There have been numerous convincing arguments put forth by evangelical biblical scholars to demonstrate that the genealogies of the Bible leading back to Adam are incomplete. The term was the father of, may mean was the ancestor of. For just one account of this, see K.A. Kitchen on the reliability of the Old Testament, pages 439 to 443, end of quote. In previous messages, I presented the case for the biblical genealogies being complete. It is only when men are given to accepting extra-biblical material as authoritative that they begin to question the completeness of the genealogical accounts in Genesis. Remember, Keller has agreed that science is the most reliable guide to understanding the material world. Therefore, we look for ways to reinterpret the plain meaning of the biblical texts 
to fit into scientific views. Keller can say that he's not trying to make room for scientific views, but that is exactly what he is doing. His statement in his ar article is contradictory to what he signed in 2010. Keller continues in his questions. He says, uh, question number two, if biological evolution is true, does that mean that we are just animals driven by our genes and everything about us can be explained by natural selection? Keller's answer is, no, belief in evolution as a biological process is not the same as belief in evolution as a worldview. Keller wants us to be not confused with biology and philosophy. Keller is critical of Richard Dawkins, the renowned atheist evolutionist, who wants to make evolution a comprehensive philosophy of life without God. Keller argues exactly the way Biologos does on its website. It wants to make a distinction between adopting the science of evolution as opposed to the worldview of evolution. In other words, accept the fact of evolution without embracing the atheism of evolution. I will reiterate my previous points in other messages. Darwinism and other expressions of evolutionary thought were conceived in a rejection of God. Darwin and other evolutionists acknowledged there were immense problems with their theories. But the alternative, God, was totally unacceptable. That is, also unacceptable to accept the biblical account. What Keller and other compromisers fail to see is that evolutionary thinking, this is so-called science, is a philosophy of life, not simply an atheistic use of life. The following comment by Keller is most disturbing. He says, quote, Many Christian laypeople resist all of this and seek to hold on to some sense of human dignity by by subscribing to fiat creationism. This is not a sophisticated theological and philosophical move. It is intuitive. In their mind, evolution is one big ball of wax. It seems to them that if you believe in evolution, human beings are just animals under the power of their inner genetically produced drives, end of quote. Most Christian lay people understand the issues far better than Dr. Keller. Subscribing to fiat creationism does preserve human dignity as one made uniquely in God's image. Man is no highly evolved animal. As 1 Corinthians 15.39 says, there is one flesh of beasts and one flesh of men. Psalm 8 hardly substantiates Dr. Keller's views. Tim Keller even wants to chastise creationists for their beliefs with respect to theistic evolutionists. He says, quote, Many Orthodox Christians who believe in evolutionary biological processes often find themselves attacked by those Christians who do not, but it might, be, but it might reduce the tensions between believers over evolution if they can make common cause against grand theory of evolution. Most importantly, it is the only way to help Christian lay people make the distinction in their minds between evolution as biological mechanism and as a theory of life. Sorry, Dr. Keller. Theistic evolutionists deserve to be criticized and deserve to be ousted from their positions in their churches. 
I've seen this ploy all too often and where it leads. Creationists now become, quote, the bad guys and, quote, the narrow-minded ones. Theistic evolution is a sinful compromise of the faith because it robs God of his glory, denies the fundamental hermeneutical principle of letting Scripture interpret Scripture, and it makes the findings of modern science as interpreted by evolutionists the means by which the Scripture must be reinterpreted. The reason I spent the time that I did in early messages dealing with the problems of evolution is because the theory of evolution is very bad science. It's bad because it touts itself as a fact when it is not an established scientific fact, and many evolutionists have admitted that it really cannot be proven. There are not transitional life forms living today that verify Darwin's fundamental thesis, a reality that Darwin himself admitted. Moreover, the fossil record does not demonstrate the myriad of transitional forms that must have existed, which is another reality that Darwin and others admitted. The plain reading of Scripture demonstrates a six-day, 24-hour period. It demonstrates that the genealogies are correct with no time gaps. This makes the earth around 6,000 years old, a belief held among many theologians prior to the advent of Darwinism. And yes, I will always defend the faith against those who want to deny Scripture's plain reading, thinking that modern science is a better interpreter of the material world than the Bible. Dr. Keller addresses then his last question, question number three. If biological evolution is true, and there was no historical Adam and Eve, how can we know where sin and suffering came from? Keller's answer, belief in evolution can be compatible with a belief in an historical fall and a literal Adam and Eve. There are many unanswered questions about this issue, and so Christians who believe God used evolution must be open to, to one another's views. Keller does see some real potential problems with some theistic evolutionists who are denying the historicity of Adam and Eve. He mentions that one of his favorite writers, C.S. Lewis, was a theistic evolutionist who denied a literal Adam and Eve. In another message, I will quote from one of C.S. Lewis's books, where he revealed that he was a theistic evolutionist. And I will quote from Dr. Peter Enns, who has denied a literal Adam and Eve as well. Those denying the existence of an historical Adam and Eve believe that this portion of the Genesis account is but an allegory or a symbol of the human race. I find it somewhat ironic that Keller wants to defend some kind of a traditional understanding of an historical Adam and Eve to preserve what he calls the trustworthiness of Scripture. It's ironic because he's gone on record in supporting Biologos' statement that science is the most reliable guide to understanding the material world and that God used evolution as the mechanism for the formation of life. Keller does argue that in Romans 5.12, the Apostle Paul did believe that Adam was a real figure, because this is what Paul wanted to convey. But in arguing for us to make Paul literally, Keller doesn't want to be too dogmatic in objecting against those who think otherwise. Keller states, quote, I'm not arguing something so crude as, Quote, if you don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve, 
then you don't believe in the authority of the Bible. I contend above that we cannot take every text of the Bible literally, but the key for interpretation is the Bible itself. I don't believe Genesis 1 can be taken literally because I don't think the author expected us to. But Paul is different. He most definitely wanted to teach us that Adam and Eve were real historical figures. When you refuse to take a biblical author literally, when he clearly wants you to do so, you have moved away from the traditional understanding of the biblical authority. As I've said above, that doesn't mean you can't have a strong, vital faith yourself, but I believe such a move can be bad for the church as a whole, and it certainly can lead to confusion on the part of lay people. End of quote. The grave weakness with Keller's previous comment is that he has advocated an essentially arbitrary mode of interpreting the Bible. While I agree that some places in Scripture are historical narrative, while other areas are, do incorporate poetic language, we must tread with great care in determining which is which. The wisdom literature does incorporate figurative language in order to convey biblical truth. For God to own the cattle on a thousand hills doesn't mean that God doesn't own the thousand and first hill. It is a poetic expression denoting God's complete ownership of all things. For God to govern, to cover us under his wings doesn't mean that God's some literally huge bird. It conveys God's loving care of his people. But here's the immense problem with Keller's line of argumentation. While he thinks that Paul intended for us to believe in an historical Adam, Keller doesn't think the inspired author intended for us to take Genesis 1 literally. But why not, Dr. Keller? Why not? There's nothing in the text in Genesis 1 that indicates that it is poetic like the wisdom literature. Letting the scripture interpret scripture is indeed the most reliable means of interpreting scripture. When we implement this fundamental hermeneutical principle, we see all indications that Genesis 1 does exhibit itself as historical narrative. Therefore, it is indeed meant to be taken literally in its plain sense. The only reason Dr. Keller doesn't think so is simply because modern science, i.e., evolutionary science, thinks this to be absurd. The only way to maintain the integrity of sola scriptura, that is, scripture's sole authority, is to affirm just that. Only the Bible is authoritative. Science must never be viewed as an equal authority. Science must never be allowed to impose its views on Scripture. Therefore, Dr. Keller was wrong to have signed Biologos' 2010 Statement of Belief. The plain reading of Genesis 1 is that God created all that is in the space of six literal 24-hour days and all very good. That is what the Westminster Confession of Faith states. And it is what elders are to believe if they are true to the confession. Actually, Keller has advocated a very dangerous hermeneutic. He gives latitude of opinions on what portions of the Bible are literal and what ones are not. As we shall see, Peter Enns has differing opinions. Dr. Ron Chun, who has taught in Keller's church, has differing opinions that are quite disturbing, as we will see. I agree with Keller that often God's people are confused when they are told that some portions they thought were to be taken literally should not be viewed as such. However, Keller has not helped us out, but instead he's augmented the problem. 
Figuratively speaking, Keller's views have opened up Pandora's box. The moment that one allows Darwinian evolution as the mechanism that God supposedly used to make living creatures, all sorts of problems begin to emerge, especially with reference to man's creation. In his article, Keller argues that Adam and Eve were genuine historical figures. He then seeks to consider how we can theologically maintain Adam and Eve's historicity and still adopt an evolutionary model. Keller states, quote, If Adam and Eve were historical figures, could they have been the product of evolutionary biological processes? An older evangelical commentary on Genesis by Derek Kidner provides a model for how that could have been the case, in the quote. Keller quotes Derek Kidner as saying, quote, Man in scripture is much more than Homo Favar, the maker of tools. He has constituted man by God's image and breath, nothing less. The intelligent beings of a remote past whose bodily and cultural remains give them the clear status of modern man to the anthropologist may yet have been decisively below the plane of life which was established in the creation of Adam. Nothing requires that the creature into which God breathed human life should not have been of a species prepared in every way for humanity. End of quote. It is clear that Kidner believed that there were human-like creatures, hominids, existing prior to and with Adam. Adam is simply one of these creatures that God selected to receive his image. God breathed human life into this creature. Hence, a hominid that evolved from lower forms of life now becomes, quote, the Adam of Scripture. In a strange twist of trying to maintain the concept of Adam's federal headship over the human race, Keller quotes Kidner as saying, quote, Yet it is at least conceivable that after the special creation of Eve, which established the first human pair as God's vice-regents, and clinched the fact that there is no natural bridge from Adam to man, animal to man, God may have now conferred his image on Adam's collaterals to bring them into the same realm of being, Adam's federal headship of humanity extended, if that was the case, outwards to his contemporaries as well as onwards to his offspring, and his disobedience disinherited both alike. End of quote. Keller recognizes a certain oddity in Kidner's view, but does not necessarily refute it. It appears that while God conferred his image upon a hominid, making him, quote, man, God by special creation makes Eve, thereby establishing the first human pair. Wow! Why does Kidner grant special creation to Eve but not to Adam? If God can make a female companion to Adam, by special creation, why is this not possible with Adam? Perhaps one reason is that Kidner believed that God made both Adam and Eve by special creation. There would be no need for evolution. But then, science supposedly tells us that evolution is a fact. Kidner feels compelled to adopt evolution. There's another oddity in Kidner's thinking. God somehow decides to confer his image upon Adam's collaterals, bringing them into the same status of being. In other words, God supernaturally breathes into these 
other hominid ape-like creatures, making them also into God's image. But why? Well, we, we must account for the federal headship of Adam over the human race. Kidner states that there is no natural bridge from animal to man. God must supernaturally somehow make man into his image. Apparently, this could not have evolved, according to Kidner. Do you see what I mean that Pandora's box is open once we allow evolution into the mix? What a bizarre interpretation of man's creation in the image of God. What's the problem with simply accepting God's special creation of both Adam and Eve, as Genesis 1 plainly states? The only reason for such a weird explanation of Adam and Eve's being made into God's image is that one is forced to have evolution in the equation. And why must we have evolution? It's because modern science says evolution is a fact. Hence, somehow God making Adam from the dust is not a simple, special, creative act, but a description of, of an evolutionary process. Oh, really? As I mentioned in another chapter, or another message, a word study of the word dust reveals just that. It means dust. The notion that making man of dust is simplistic, uh, is, a, is a simplistic expression of evolution, is about as good as an example of eisegesis that I can think of. That is, reading into scripture, ideas foreign to the text to make it say whatever one wants to say. Then, then is the Bible solely authoritative? Not really. Science, then, must give us the proper interpretation of Scripture. Another problem associated with having evolution as the mechanism of creation is that one is forced to deal with the theological question of death before man's fall into sin. If God supposedly used the evolutionary process to create life forms over millions of years before he supposedly conferred his image upon one of these hominid creatures, then this means that death was a commonplace reality prior to man's creation and the fall. But I thought the Bible said that death came as a result of man's fall. How does the theistic evolutionist get around this problem? Keller says that the answer to this theological problem is that the primary result of the fall was, quote, spiritual death. Now, this is a half-truth. While Keller would admit that physical death came eventually to man in his posterity due to his sin, he still maintains that death had to be in the world prior to Adam's fall into sin. The traditional and biblical understanding of sin and death, and that which is expressed in our Westminster Standards, is that Adam's fall into sin was brought for the first time, is what it says, both physical and spiritual death into the world. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 28, asks, What are the punishments of sin in this world? The answer deals with man's spiritual death, but then the last part of the answer states in addition to the spiritual death, quote, together with death itself. And the proof text used for this portion is Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I also noted in a previous message that man's fall into sin brought the entire creation into a state of slavery 
and corruption as well. Romans 8, 19-22 states, quote, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. End of quote from God's precious word. The clear import of Scripture is that Adam's sin brought death into the created realm. This means that death was not in creation before the fall. Keller argues that the world wasn't perfect prior to the fall because Satan was around, which would make it imperfect. Also, Keller argues that traditional theology has never believed that humanity was in a glorified perfect state. Keller says that even a traditional interpretation of God's creation of the earth means there was not perfect order and peace in creation from the first moment. For one, I and others refute this statement of Keller that a traditional interpretation of God's creative work meant that it was not a perfect order with a perfect peace. I consider this as a serious theological error. A traditional interpretation of the Genesis account is a six-day, 24-hour period for the days of creation. It is no minor point that the scripture says that each creative act and God saw that it was good. For Keller to maintain that there was not perfect order and peace is to contradict the clear import of scripture and impugn God's creative acts. Why would Keller think there was no perfect order and peace in the days of creation? It is purely based upon his faulty premise that God used the mechanism of evolution, which means that the days of creation cannot be 24-hour periods, but long periods of time, i.e. millions of years. The implication of saying that there was no perfect order and peace is because there was the survival of the fittest, meaning that there was much violence and death. Since Keller thinks that there is some merit in Derek Kidner's view that there were hominids in the world out of which God chose to bestow his image on one called Adam, the clear implication is that there was death among these hominids. Keller would maintain a view that the days of creation are long periods of time, a view known as the day-age view. And the only reason why he would hold to this view is because he is bought into at least an old age view of the universe. From a purely logical perspective, Dr. Keller's argument that there was no perfect in order and peace in God's creative acts is an unsound argument. In his book, With Good Reason, An Introduction to Informal Fallacies, author S. Moral Engel states, quote, In order to accept the conclusion of an argument as true, Therefore, we must be sure of two things. We need to know first that the premises are true, not false. Premises, after all, are the foundation of an argument. If they are unreliable or shaky, the argument built on them will be no better. Second, we need to know that the inference from the premises is valid, not invalid. One may begin with true premises, but make proper and improper use of them, reasoning incorrectly and thus reaching an unwarranted conclusion. In the quote. But then Engel discusses one possible scenario for an unsound argument. He, he states, quote, 
We may have our facts wrong, one or more of our premises is false, but we may make proper use of them, reason validly with them. In this case, our argument will be valid, but unsound, end of quote. This is the case with most of Dr. Keller's arguments. They are unsound because his premises are false. It is a false premise to say that there was no perfect order and peace in the days of creation. It is a false premise to think that the days of creation are long periods of time. It is a false premise to think that evolution is correct. Keller must clearly establish from Scripture itself that the days of creation are not ordinary days, that the chronologies of the Bible are not correct, and that evolution itself is a fact. In previous messages, I presented the biblical case for understanding the days of creation as six sequential ordinary days. I presented the biblical case for accepting the genealogical chronologies as accurate, meaning that the creation is not billions of years old, but around 6,000 years old. Dr. Keller ends his article with an exhortation for Christians to learn how to correlate Scripture with science. He says that there must be a big tent that does not exclude various ideas. He states, quote, Even though in this paper I argue for the importance of belief in a literal Adam and Eve, I have shown that there are several ways to hold that and still believe in God using evolutionary biological processes. End of quote. Where else is Keller's capitulation to evolutionary thought led him? It has led him to believe that Noah's flood was not universal, but only a regional flood. Keller has written, quote, I believe Noah's flood happened, but that it was a regional flood, not a, a worldwide flood. On the one hand, those who insist on it being a worldwide flood seem to ignore too much the scientific evidence that there was no such thing, end of quote. The huge thing to note from this quote from Dr. Keller is that his belief in Noah's flood not being universal as Christians have believed for millennia is because he says, the scientific evidence says there was no such thing. Dr. Keller doesn't exegete relevant scripture that substantiates a universal flood. No, instead of biblical exegesis being faithfully engaged in, Keller says that science has ruled that Noah's flood was not universal. Hence, so much for solar scriptura being our mode for interpreting the Bible, the Bible must give way to the opinions of men, even unbelieving men. Apparently, Dr. Keller doesn't check whether he has written in one place corresponds to what he's written elsewhere. In his concluding thoughts in his article, Creation, Evolution, and Lay People, Keller writes, quote, We must interpret the book of nature by the book of God. To read it with one eye on one, any other account is to blur its image and miss its wisdom. End of quote. There's no way of reconciling Keller's two quotes. Sorry, but his last quote is an empty exhortation because this is not what he practices. Sola Scriptura is not the wisdom that he practices. His understanding of Scripture is guided by science. Since Keller has failed to look at relevant Scripture, allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, I will point to two very relevant texts. Matthew 24, verses 37-41, and 2 Peter 3, verses 3-13. Matthew 24, 
reads, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. End of quote from God's precious word. This portion of Matthew 24 pertains to Jesus' second coming at the end of the world. Please note that Jesus compares his second coming to Noah's flood. The all-important question then is this. How universal does one think Jesus' second coming is? Is it a regional second coming? Of course not. The clear implication is that all men are affected. The second Bible passage is 2 Peter 3, verses 3-13, which reads, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promises, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. End of quote from God's precious word. As you can see, the destruction of the world by Noah's flood is placed in juxtaposition to how the present earth and heavens will be destroyed at Jesus' second coming. Don't you think verse 5 is rather clear in Second Peter, uh, that is th 3, verse 5? The world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. This is no regional flood. Noah's flood destroyed, quote, the world. The meaning of the word world in this context is rather clear. For just as universal as Noah's flood was in destroying the world, so will the world be consumed one day with intense heat. This is no regional flood. This is no regional destruction of the world by fire. The plain meaning of the text is clear. And all responsible Bible commentators have understood the clear import of this passage. Noah's flood was intended was indeed universal, contrary to Dr. Keller and other compromisers, as we shall see. 
biblical exegesis demonstrates the universality of Noah's flood. For Keller to make science reinterpret the scripture is irresponsible, to put it mildly. Tim Keller's views are out of accord with the confessional documents that he took an oath to uphold in his denomination, the PCA. A part of that ordination vow reads as follows, and I read from the Constitution of the PCA. It says, quote, Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will on your own initiative make known to your presbytery the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow. Now that's what the the vow reads. Tim Keller has accepted all the major premises of evolutionary thought. I just quoted a moment ago his statement of endorsement for Biologos that it uses on its homepage in a rotation with other notables. Biologos openly embraces theistic evolution. In his paper, Creation, Evolution, and Christian Laypeople, Keller has argued for the plausibility of a view of man that was once an ape-like creature with which God conferred his image upon. In summary, the main strikes against Dr. Keller are, one, he allows his name to be used on Biologos' homepage as a reference for the purpose of encouraging others to see the great value of this foundation, a foundation which openly embraces theistic evolution. Two, he has allowed his church to sponsor the workshops of Biologos. Three, he has allowed Dr. Ron Shun to teach in his church, who has adopted views that not only embrace theistic evolution, but which assault other precious truths of the biblical doctrine of creation. In another message, I will discuss the PCA's creation report adopted in the year 2000. While the report allowed a certain amount of diverse beliefs, it at least rejected any view of evolution. Hence, Tim Keller stands in direct opposition to the position of his denomination. Is he under discipline for this? Absolutely not. Will he ever be disciplined for this? Probably never. If the PCA cannot or refuses to discipline men who embrace federal vision theology despite overwhelming evidence against them, do not expect the denomination to discipline men who are out of, out of accord with the Bible's doctrine of creation.